We left off last week in our Exodus study with this shining face of Moses, and we used Moses' shining face to show you two other faces that are shining. One is King Jesus, whose face shines at the Mount of Transfiguration. Later, we see Jesus' face shining in the New Jerusalem, where it says that there is no lamp for the city because the Lamb is the lamp. But then we also saw in the Scriptures that there is another face that shines. And the face that shines is the face that has been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, now indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Your face shines like light in a dark world. I found it fitting to consider that light in view of what a dark world it is. As so many are filled with heartache, there is no better place than to fix your eyes upon the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. We're returning to Exodus 35 with a reminder that Moses and the Hebrew people have another step. And that next step is to go ahead and build the tabernacle. And so in Exodus 35, we read how God's mercy and grace compelled God's people to action. We're going to read chapter 35 down to 36, verse 7. I'll skip in some places. I'll encourage you just simply to follow along with me. This is God's Word. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze. And then he goes on to list all of the other elements that are necessary in the building of the tabernacle and the garments of the priest. Verse 10, let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle, its tent, its coverings. And then he goes on to describe all the pieces which must be present in the sanctuary. And then down to verse 20. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects. Every man dedicated an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue and purple and scarlet yarn or fine linens or goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose heart stirred them. To use their skill, spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought the onyx stone and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastplate and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women 
the people of Israel whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be brought, to be done, brought it as a freewill offering to the Lord. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, see, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill and intelligence, with knowledge and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him to come and do the work. And they received from Moses all the contributions that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work of the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Here's God's word. Let's pray for his help. Lord, we come to your word and pray for the ministry of your Holy Spirit so that you would give us ears to hear what your Spirit says to your people. We recognize also that you have appointed a sinful crooked stick like me at this moment to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus. And so we pray that you would see fit to use me in order to point to Christ. We pray that you would give your people ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Bible repetitions underline Bible priorities. That's the way Alec Motier looks at these last six chapters of Exodus. What does he mean? He simply means that important things get said twice, sometimes three times or more. If you've walked with us through the book of Exodus, you've seen this very thing yourself. I mean, how many times has the Lord repeated the command to celebrate the Sabbath day? Chapter 16 and 20 and 31 and 34 and 35. Repeatedly, we've seen the phrase, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Repeatedly, we've heard him say, you shall have no other gods repeatedly in in response to their sin of the golden bull he says you are a stiff-necked people four times chapter 25 through 31 the lord told his people to build the tabernacle and then there was a lot of detail back then that detail is repeated in chapter 35 to 39 they actually build it we'll get there after easter but before we get there there's an important repetition in the text today I don't know if you heard it. It is the word heart, or more particularly, everyone whose heart stirred him 
whose heart or spirit moved him. What's the significance of that? Well, these are people who have had their hearts stirred in the past. Just a couple of chapters back, they had their hearts stirred towards worshiping a golden calf. They were unfaithful to the Lord. And so here's a message about grace. But not simply grace as a concept. But grace that is empowered by the presence of God in order to move the human heart. Which is, of course, so often moved in the wrong direction. If you've ever heard someone say people don't change or people can't change, perhaps that's true. But God can and grace can. And God's presence actually will change people. That's what the Holy Spirit does for every person who belongs to Jesus Christ. So what's the point of our text this morning? Those moved by God's grace respond with action. So here you'll notice three actions of the people of Israel in response to God's grace. Generosity, service, obedience. We start with generosity. Our passage, of course, opens with one of those repetitions that I mentioned. How many times has God said something about the the Sabbath? Well, when you come to this one, you go, I think that's at least five. You need to understand, though, that this particular restatement requires, if I'm going to understand what's going on, I've got to lift the camera lens and I've got to see it in the context of Exodus. If you go back to chapter 25 through 31, right as the Lord is instructing Moses on all of the tabernacle and everything that's got to be there, the Lord makes this promise, I'm going to come and I'm going to dwell in your midst. And we spent so many weeks talking about the beauty and the richness of that tabernacle. God says, I'll be present with you. And all of these elements will remind you of my grace and steadfast love. And the very last thing that the Lord said to Moses before he gave them the tablets was this, chapter 31, 13, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. And so it was in chapter 31 that Sabbath rest is spoken of as a way to help God's people simply remember that it's God who sanctifies them. And then no sooner have those statements been made in chapter 31, the tablets are handed to Moses, and then we have a golden calf. And we spent several chapters watching as the Lord brings them out of the depths of those disobedience. Not only did the Lord express and display His willingness to forgive their sins, but He also spends a great deal of time reassuring them that He is faithful even when they are unfaithful. And so God takes the golden bull of their sins and he crafts it in his own hands to become spiritual growth, to become spiritual refinement for his people. In fact, that's actually what the Lord does for his people. He takes your sin. He takes my sin. And he uses it for his purposes. He he brings you and me to repentance and, and he forgives us and he disciplines us and he reminds us of his steadfast love. And in the midst of all that, he's he's strengthening us in our faith. And so that gross sin of chapter 32 serves to prove the, the very point that God was making. You don't sanctify yourself. I'm the one who sanctifies you. I make you holy. I make you acceptable. 
Therefore, I want you to observe this every single week, this day of rest, as a reminder of that spiritual reality. So then why does he restate it? When you come to this chapter, because it's as if God picks up exactly where he left off. As if your sins did not shake his purposes at all. As I was saying, before your sin interrupted my point, the Sabbath is a weekly treasure to remind you of my relationship with you. If you take out this golden calf, if you take out that whole narrative, what's the Lord doing? He just returns to his point. You're going to get excited about building a tabernacle. And in your enthusiasm, you might think, hey, it's holy work. We could do holy work on a holy day. You might become overwhelmed by zeal for for serving the Lord. Look what the task that God has given us. Let's work. And you might feel in that moment of your work for the Lord that you're the one who's being generous to Him. God says, actually, what I would prefer you do is memorialize my point. I will sanctify you. Over the years, I have read the book of Exodus many times. I'm sure you have too. It's not until I've preached it that I've noticed the sheer number of times that the Lord wants to repeat this message about the Sabbath command. So that God offers a gift of rest and worship on the Lord's day because He intends you and I to take it seriously because He takes it seriously. And you might say, five times, Lord? That seriously? And we should say yes. Here's a word to pastors, including myself and any others who think of themselves as doing something of the the Lord's work. You cannot know what it means to work for Christ if you have not learned what it means to rest in Christ. It's a gospel principle. It's actually illustrated in the weekly pattern. The Lord's day is not your generosity to God. Hey, look, I mean, I got up and I put on these clothes and I I showed up and here I am, I'm singing. No, the Lord's day is God's generosity to you. You see, I'm the one that makes it possible for you to have a relationship with me. Stop what you're doing. Wait upon me. Worship me. Rest in me. I want you to know that I know what's best for you more than you know what's best for you and more than others know what's best for you. And then, and only then, does Moses begin to tell us about how God's grace moved his people to generosity. Isn't that fascinating? Chapter 35, verse 5, it says, Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever's of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. And then he lists everything that's needed for the project. Then you skip down to verse 21. They came, everyone whose heart stirred him, everyone whose spirit moved him, and they brought the Lord's contribution. So they came, verse 22 says, all who were of a willing heart. And then the next three verses repeat this refrain. Everyone who possessed, everyone who could make a contribution, everyone who possessed something. And they brought it and they began to build. Verse 29, all the men and women of the people of Israel whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. 
where did all of this stuff come from? Like, how do nomadic tribes who've been enslaved for 400 years possess gold and silver and bronze and yarns of rich color and linen goods? Exodus chapter 12, verse 35, told us. God instructed them even while they were still slaves. Why don't you ask the Egyptians for some gold and silver and jewelry and clothing? And it says, the Lord gave favor to His people in the sight of the Egyptians, so they let them have whatever they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. You see, the Lord put in their hands the wealth of the nations, and they did not even have to draw a sword. And then, why does God want them to build it? Like, why didn't He just drop a tabernacle out of the sky? Surely He could have. Because God knows that this is what is best for the heart of the giver. God has the plans. He could certainly build anything He wants. The creation itself proves that. He doesn't need your help or mine. But instead, what the Lord chooses to do is to give the wealth to His people. And He says, give back to me from a portion of what I've given you. Trust me. Get involved in what I'm doing here. Simply open your hands. One pastor said it this way, God doesn't have a need to receive. You have a need to give. And that's true. Of course, because God designed you that way. So that when you give back to the Lord the wealth that He has put into your hands... Not only does it teach you generosity, but it loosens your grip on the very things which could so easily ensnare your heart. All the things of materialism and greed, of power and self-sufficiency. Look what I did. Look what I have. Why were their hearts moved like this? I can't help but wonder how many of them don't look back with a, a kind of conviction Because just a couple of chapters back, they were all pretty generous as well. You remember it? When it came time for the construction of an idol, they were taking off rings, pulling them out of their ears and their noses and their fingers. Aaron, build it for us. Back then, they had no trouble at all being lavish when they wanted to fund an idol. You don't have any trouble with that either do you what I mean is how much do you spend how much are you willing to spend to see the idols of your heart thrive and from that point you wonder don't you if they were struck by the fact that in mercy God gave them a chance to turn from it a chance to repent. Were they struck that 3,000 people actually died because they were unwilling to repent? Were they struck with gratitude by the fact that simply 3,000 people died, but multiple millions were brought to repentance and saving faith? What caused their hearts to be moved? It wasn't their generosity. It was God's generosity. If we have it, it's because God gave it to us. There's something in our pride that would whisper, no, no, it's, in, it's your intelligence, it's your work ethic, you're so wise. And when we reason that way, our hearts are unmoved. Why would you give to the Lord if you think you've earned it yourself? 
Others have a fear voice that says, well, I need to hang on to this. At least until I get past this crisis, until I know that everything's going to be okay, then I'll start giving his tithe and my offering once this crisis is passed. And then what happens, of course, is that one crisis leads to another. And you wonder, perhaps, could it be that Lord, the Lord causes the crisis in your life to teach you to trust him? even when you fear, so that you do not reason whether or not you'll be generous to the Lord based on your circumstances, but whether you reason, I'll give back to the Lord because He's so faithful to me. Surely He can be trusted. These move, those moved by God's grace respond with action. You should see that as evidence in your own life if you belong to Christ as it pertains to generosity, but also as it pertains to service. God's people didn't just give to the Lord. You notice they, they served both with time and skill. So look at verse 10. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. And then what follows is a list of the things to be made. And as the supplies were brought, people began to use their talents. Verse 25, every skillful woman spun with her hands. Verse 26, all the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. Chapter 36, verse 2, Moses called Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to do the Lord's work. You notice, don't you, that, that in this giving or serving the Lord, there's two factors that are present. Number one, it is the Lord who gave them the skill. You might say it's the Lord who gave them the gift to do the work. But number two, their hearts were stirred to come and, and do the work. That's worth noticing because those exact same factors are necessary in the church. If anyone has a particular skill and yet no one's heart is moved to serve, then nothing really will get done. Likewise, if everyone's moved to serve but they aren't working in the particular area of their skill or gifting, then no project will turn out very well. The person who's skilled in woodworking doesn't need to be making the curtains for the tabernacle. God gifted someone else for, for curtains. The person skilled in weaving and sewing shouldn't be busy trying to cast the metal. So in Exodus 35, each person used their specific gift and their specific talent for service in the building of the tabernacle. And the fact is, that's the way it works in the church. Every person who's been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ has been given a spiritual gift to be used in the church. Some have several spiritual gifts. That's in Romans 12. It's in 1 Corinthians 12. It's in Ephesians 4. It's in 1 Peter 4. So that we're a part of the building of God's church. Not a building, but a kingdom. The same God who equipped the Hebrew people has equipped you. Again, why didn't God just drop a tabernacle out of the sky? Because it's good for God's people to utilize the gifts that he's given them to build the kingdom work. Again, what caused their hearts to be moved? Isn't it because the very people who rejected the Lord, who justifiably, he could have said, hey, I'll tell you what, good luck with the desert, good luck trying to get to Canaan, good luck with conquering the promised land. Those are the very people that God said, no, I'll stay with you and let's go. 
And their hearts are moved because God in his mercy said, I've never wavered. I still intend to dwell with you. I want you to make a place for me to live in your midst. And they start working. And that's actually what chapter 36, 37, 38, 39 is. It's a fulfillment of everything that the Lord commanded his people to build. God's people worked. And the reason they worked is because the tabernacle is going to be a visible reminder that the Lord dwells in our midst. And you should ask if they were so willing to work because the Lord was willing to dwell in their midst in a tent that is temporary. How much more should you and I be willing to work towards the building of the kingdom because the Lord for us does not simply promise to come and dwell in a tent in our midst. He promises to come and dwell in a new heavens and a new earth Revelation 22, verse, 21, verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's actually what we're laboring for and toward. Because this faithful God promises to dwell with his people. Now, to this point, we've talked about a heart moved to generosity, a heart moved to service by the grace of God. I want you to think just differently for just a moment. In the context of our passage, what would it say about a person's spiritual condition if having seen what they saw, having received the grace that they saw, their hearts remained unmoved? If they couldn't find anything to give, if they couldn't come up with a time or any willingness or skill at all to serve the Lord? What does it say when a person or a heart has tasted grace and yet they are unwilling to be moved of heart? And then, of course, what would it say in the church if there were members who cared nothing about giving tithes and offerings? Doesn't it say something about a lack of response to the grace that's been given? What would it say if there were people who cared nothing about serving anywhere in the life of the church? Members who simply wanted to join a church in order to reap the, the services rendered. If they were excited about having a nursery, but they were unwilling to take a turn themselves or serve there. They want Sunday school for their kids, but they may have no interest in participating in the work of Sunday school or ever even attending Sunday school themselves. We want small groups. That's good. But no, 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 I, I don't want to go. I'm kind of busy on Sunday nights. What that would be would be a description of the American church in 2023. Which speaks volumes about how and if our hearts are actually moved to gratitude by God's grace. It's a nation of consumers. And I wonder if I'm not one of them. I wonder if you are. Those moved by God's grace respond with action. Would you give back to the Lord with a generous heart? Will you serve the Lord through His church in service? And then finally, there's this issue of obedience. 
You might hear someone say that people don't change or they can't change, but as I mentioned before, God can and grace can, and His presence actually does change people. You notice in chapter 36, verse 1, those whom the Lord called and equipped by grace were summoned to obedience. It says, work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. They've been saved by grace. They've been rescued from bondage in Egypt. They owe God obedience, don't they, right from the start. And yet the book of Exodus tells us that commands are actually frequent, but obedience is rare. Don't get me wrong, promises are big. Chapter 24, verse 7, Moses gave him the book of the covenant. He read it, and the people said, all that the Lord has spoken, we'll do. We'll be obedient. In the case of the tabernacle, they really did obey. Fast forward in Exodus to chapter 39, verse 43. The, the reader would be startled to say, Moses saw all the work, and behold, they'd done it. As the Lord had commanded them, their obedience to this command really is, is a kind of high watermark in the book of Exodus. And I say that because throughout the rest of the Old Testament, commands are frequent. Obedience is rare. But to be clear, that's actually why the Lord is asking them to build a tabernacle right in their midst. He intends to put a life-sized illustration of His holiness in their midst, a life-size illustration of man's sin in their midst, a life-size illustration that sin separates God from man. They need a life-size illustration of atonement, that sin really does demand a blood sacrifice. And where commands are many and obedience is rare, this is a message that they will have to come back to again and again and again because it says, obviously, and they would have caught this, there's not enough animal blood in the whole world to pay for my sin. And though that's obvious, they would have felt an ongoing tension. So even as they build the tabernacle and they get it built, the tabernacle, once it's built, is going to constantly remind them of this ongoing, endless problem of disobedience that dwells in the human heart. Okay, so my sins are atoned for, and there's mercy, and there's grace, and yet clearly God's character would demand from mercy and grace that I should be compelled to a new obedience. But here I am back again and again and again. And every single person who comes back for atonement acknowledges, I wish I could be obedient. Hebrews chapter 10 takes Psalm 40 and places it on the lips of Jesus. There was some time ago in God's economy a conversation that took place. And Hebrews says that we must confront the issue that mankind could never figure out. They knew it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What they couldn't figure out is who will ever be truly moved by God's grace to respond with meaningful action. Who would ever be permanently compelled in character, by God's character, to actually, really, forever be obedient? Because it's not happening in here. Hebrews 10, 5, Christ came in the world to resolve this tension. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body, Lord, you've prepared for me, says Jesus. In burnt offerings, in sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. That's why Jesus says, behold, I've come to do your will. 
You see, Jesus was so fully moved by God's grace that he responded with action. He responded with a life of perfect obedience, an atoning sacrifice to pay for the disobedient. So friends, this side of the cross, you and I do not have to feel the same tension that they felt because in fact what we find is peace in the midst of an ongoing awareness of our own disobedience. Whereas disobedience took them back day after day, week after week, year after year. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 10 says, Because Christ willed to obey His Father, you and I have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Who's generous in the text, who really serves in the text, who's really obedient in the text. Generosity. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Service. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Obedience. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, friends, Jesus was moved so fully by God's grace that he responded with action so that you and I might be so fully moved by God's grace that we would respond in like manner. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would cause your spirit to make it land in our hearts and minister to us by it. We thank you for the work of your spirit. Send forth your spirit and speak to your people. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.